When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Despite the fact that there is a new hazard on the playground that every parent needs. I like the big matzo ball. The TV. Let's try radio. Is this mic on? If you can't get rid of the filibuster, what if we just get rid of the Senate? I don't understand what possible positive purpose the United States Senate provides right now. Is this mic on? I say to my members on a regular basis, I've said to them, it's the greatest collection of intellect integrity for doing the right thing for the american people is this mic on that is an interesting reading of english you you i assume you got in the in the journals because you like to write is this mic on and i couldn't even hear him because people were shouting at us to get out but somebody came up to me in the briefing room a few minutes later and said did you hear what the president <laughs> said and i said no what they said he called you a stupid sob so Ducey, i think the president's right you are a stupid SOB. <laughs> Yeah, nobody has fact-checked him yet. Is this mic on? Whoops, we got a hot, hot mic, mic here. That's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid son of a... Is this mic on? Jack Riccardi, 4 till 7. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. My whole life is a hot mic. <laughs> I'm telling you. 407 on San Antonio's News Talk Station, 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Welcome to the afternoon version of the Jack Riccardi Show. And join in at 210-599-5555. So, um, do you remember Neil Young? The, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, protest songs, Vietnam War. You know, Neil Young. Okay. Neil Young, according to Rolling Stone magazine, has written an angry letter to the music streaming service Spotify. And um, it's an ultimatum, actually. He's telling Spotify, either remove all of my music or remove the Joe Rogan podcast. You can't have them both, Young told Spotify. It's either me or him. Not both. He is angry because, he says, Rogan spreads misinformation about COVID. Rogan is worth an estimated $100 million to Spotify. I don't know what the Neil Young catalog is worth, but I'm thinking it can't be anywhere close to that. And again, this is not to disparage Neil Young. Great rocker. We play some of his music on this show. But he's not, this is not a fight he wants to pick, or as my mom used to say, this is not the hill you want to die on. No, we're not going to break our Neil Young records, and, you know, no. But, and I mean, in what, in how sheltered do you have to be to think you can even lay down this kind of an ultimatum? Like, I'll, I'll show them. So we've gone from keep on rocking in the free world to 
censor and silence people I don't like. See, here's the thing. Neil Young was what Joe Rogan is now, which would make Neil Young crazy if you said it to him. But it's true. Neil Young was the counterculture voice. He was the, you know, down with the man, right? That's what Rogan is. Except that Rogan can't sing. Rogan is essentially what rock and roll has always been, a disruptive countercultural voice. The older you are, the more likely you are not to like these things. One of the things you got to watch as you get older is not to get, you know, hardening hardening of the uh of the uh, cultural arteries, you know? You got to be able to continue to see this stuff even as you become the old man yelling at the kids to get off his front lawn. Neil Young has a whole history of hating digital technology. He uh, for years, went on and on in interviews about how anything that's recorded digitally, anything that's listened to digitally, is not only poor quality, which actually some people do believe. I mean, some people think music sounds better when it's played off of a vinyl record. But he he went further than that. He said that digital music was sabotaged and it would hurt your brain and uh, so forth and so on. Of course, he was fine with people streaming his music digitally because that's the way people now listen to music. But um, he pretty much hates digital technology, and now he, at the you know in the in the December of his career, he wants them to drop Joe Rogan. Spotify is not going to eat its one hundred million dollar deal, so that uh, Neil Young fans can get Heart of Gold one more time. It's not going to happen. It's interesting though. It's the pattern we see it over and over, right? I don't like your opinion, so no one should hear it. So this uh, Biden-Peter Ducey story refuses to go away. I think it's worth remembering that Joe Biden isn't just confused. Joe Biden is nasty. He is a history of being a bully. He has a history of being thin-skinned. This was not a one-off. This was not a, wow, we've never seen this before. Take a listen to what I mean. Somebody put together some examples of Joe Biden's not-so-nice side. Donald Trump says he makes fun of people. He belittles people. He lies. I don't do any of those things. You're a damn liar, man. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Just clap for that, you stupid bastard. You're too old to go for No, I wish you were in high school. I could take him behind the gym. Let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you say? Uh, look, fat, look, here's the deal. Wait, 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 wait. Why, 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 You're getting nervous, man. We gotta stop building and replacing pipelines. We gotta go vote for something new. And then he presses on Fallon's chest, pokes him with a finger, and finally grabs his jacket with two hands. It was not appropriate interaction for anybody. I mean, if I'd done that to him, the security would have been all over me. Take away our gun. You're full of I I had forgotten about, hey, listen, fat. I think that's my personal favorite. 210-599-5555. There's a story uh, today uh, about a a young man named D.J. Ferguson. 
He's 31 years old. He's the father of two children. His wife is pregnant with what will be their third child. Um, and he's trying to live to see that third child. He's been in the hospital since around Thanksgiving. He is on the uh, list, I guess, or he's coming up on the list uh, for a heart transplant. He has been told that they will take him off the list because he didn't get the COVID-19 vaccine. His father uh, talked to CBS4 in Boston and said uh, that his son is fighting for his life at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, desperately needs the heart. He is sticking to his guns. It's just against his basic principles, says David Ferguson, about the vaccine. He doesn't believe in it. It's a policy they're enforcing. And so because he won't get the shot, they took him off the list of a heart transplant. Now, the whole premise of mandating vaccines and masks is saving lives, right? Isn't that what they say? I mean, we don't care if you wear it or not, but you have to wear it to save other people's lives. We don't care if you get the shot or not, but you have to get the shot to save other people from getting COVID. You can't make this decision in a vacuum because other people's lives depend on what you do. Therefore, we have to make you do what you don't want to do or won't willingly do to save lives. We're, we're just about saving lives. We're not into control or power. Oh, no, no, no. We're just into saving lives. Except this guy's life. How many vaxxed people are still getting COVID? Here is a man whose life is hanging in the balance. And a a decision has been made to let him die. By the way, we have increasing reports about how the vaccines uh, run a risk of myocarditis. If I'm saying that right, which is inflammation of the heart. So why exactly does a young man who needs a new heart have to put his heart at risk with this vaccine? The hospital has its policies, and they say, like other transplants around the country, the COVID-19 vaccine is one of several vaccines and behaviors required for transplant candidates. Behaviors. You know, it seems like the whole underlying argument for charity, for saving lives, for mercy, is that we're not judging how you got into the predicament. We all just want to get you out of it. So when people are trapped in floodwaters, when people contract a sexually transmitted disease, when drug addicts need treatment, it's never been our as a society, I mean, there are people who do this or say this, but as a society, as a civilization, it's never been our position to say, well, we need to look at your behaviors in order to determine whether or not we're going to try to save you. We don't say that to the person trapped in the floodwaters. We don't say that to the person with HIV. We don't say that to the person who uh, is an addict. Do we want to start down that road? Do we want to play that? across the board would it wouldn't it be right to do that if you believe or agree, I'm sorry if you agree with what the hospital in Boston is doing 
wouldn't it be right to apply that across the board and say, well, when, when people need a medical treatment, a procedure, an operation, let's, let's first look at how much of their predicament is their fault. Let's look at their behaviors, and if their behaviors were reckless or sloppy or slovenly or um, against the established science, maybe, we, you know, maybe we're not going to help them. What do you think about that? 210-599-5555. Do you agree with what they're doing? Does it make sense to you? Uh, does it not? Are you worried about changing that whole calculation that I just talked about? Because I think we will if, if, we, if we keep seeing this, if we keep doing this. I think it's a bigger change than just this one man and whether or not he gets the heart transplant. Hey, this is David Van Camp, and you're listening... Jack Riccardi on 550 and 1071 KTSA. So here's the thing. Um, it's an incredible, I, I guess you would say, an incredible phenomenon that human beings can transplant a heart from one human body into another. And truly, it's a blessing. And I have the utmost respect for the people who do this kind of work. A friend of mine works on one of the uh, organ harvesting teams that are called in when somebody is in an accident or has a, a an injury and has left their organs for donation. They have to move in quickly and, and, and extract everything that can be extracted so that it can be donated. It's a great thing. And, of course, there have to be criteria uh, as to who gets it and who's, you know, at which point or which ranking on the list a tough thing we would love to be able to do it for everybody do you think it's right to take this young man in boston off the list because he doesn't have the covid vaccine and is that saying more about the vaccine than we really should be saying because the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting covid you know one of the arguments in favor of the hospital's decision is that uh, when you get a transplant, your immune system is so suppressed that you're apt to catch anything. But the vaccine is not some sort of bulletproof vest against COVID. COVID is also not a death sentence in and of itself. This man's 31 years old. Is this the right thing to do? Maybe it's being messaged wrong. Maybe there's more to it. It just sounds like one more way the compliance people are going to drive home their point. You will get this shot. Look what we can do. 210-599-5555. Michael is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Michael, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. No, I just totally disagree with that uh, decision. I, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but it seems like it would be a fair assessment to say that most people who need some kind of transplant might have been due to their lifestyle or something they did. Maybe they didn't exercise, overate, maybe they drank too much or smoked. So I would think that there's all kinds of situations where people had to get transplanted that had to do with some type some type of behavior issue. So that was mm-hmm. my only comment, and I appreciate it. Appreciate the call. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, not in every case. There are people with congenital conditions and, and other things, but 
but certainly in many, many cases, not only with heart transplants, but other transplants, the, the, the person receiving the organ has, you know, let's, let's just be honest, and I don't say this with any malice, they haven't lived a, a clean life, meaning they've, they've had habits or excesses that got them into or helped get them into this situation. To me, that's baked into the, uh, the transplant science. We're not sitting around waiting for the perfect person. We're not sitting around waiting for the most perfectly deserving candidate. Yes, the candidates are ranked, and that's reality. They have to be ranked on the likelihood that they will survive uh, the, the, the procedure and be able to, to thrive with the new organ. And I could be wrong, but I, I, this feels to me like one more lever the compliance crowd has found. They don't miss many. Maybe they don't miss any, actually. 210-599-5555. We're going to talk about it. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Ukraine uh, with Jed Babin, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration, and um, get his take on why exactly we're considering uh, putting uh, troops in Europe, more troops in Europe. And then, of course, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear two cases challenging racial preferences in admissions. One is at Harvard, one is at the University of North Carolina. Really glad the, the Supremes are taking this up. I think this is important. This could be a real landmark decision. In fact, Kenny Shu, the guest who's going to join us in about 25 minutes, says this uh, is more than he expected this soon from the United States Supreme Court. So um, one of the reasons we're even at this point is from some recent previous Supreme Court decisions where uh, they made allowances or left the door open a crack for race to be a consideration uh, but now they're looking at a couple of cases where it's much more than just a consideration. There's open, systemic discrimination against Asian American students. There's essentially punishment for their high achieving in order to get to a, a set of diversity numbers that somebody has decided are more appropriate. And so not just Asian Americans, but a lot of us find this Abhorrent. We're going to talk about it with Kenny Shu coming up here on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Uh, Nick's on the radio. Nick, good afternoon. Hey, man, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Good. Hey, yeah, so I, I, I got to tell you, so first off, I just read an article today about how they've already found a new uh, variant, a BA2 variant of COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think this is getting ridiculous. Because everyone forgets that in the beginning, all these professionals were saying, hey, well, you know, coronaviruses are known for the fact that when they mutate, they get weaker. Now, mm-hmm. we're two years into this, mm-hmm. and people are just buy- buying into this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look, at, I look at this circumstance. So I was in the military for 23 years. I lived in Europe, and I happened to live in England. And I have very rare blood, O negative. And I'm what's called CMV negative as well. So they can use my, my blood to transplant for fetal surgeries, babies still mm-hmm. in the womb. Mm-hmm. But I have not been able to give blood since 1996 because of mad cow disease. Mm. Now, if you catch that disease, what it does to you is horrible. You catch it, you die. I mean, it essentially eats your brain. So I don't understand how we can morally for something as so light as COVID, tell some guy, oh, you can't have a transplant because you won't get mm-hmm. a vaccine. 
right. we have reached a level of madness over this yeah. damn virus in this country. Yeah, I think it's very, very well said. Very well said, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate your call. Jed Babbins, a contributing editor at American Spectator and the former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration. Uh, and Jed Babbins, good afternoon to you. Well, good afternoon, Jack. So uh, what exactly are we planning on doing with additional troops in Europe that would in any way affect or deter the actions of Vladimir Putin? Um, nothing. Um, we've got about 8,500 troops on alert. Uh, where they're going to go or what they're going to do when they get there is not obvious to me. And uh, really, it's not going to affect Mr. Putin's plans at all. Yeah. Uh, he's got a very big game going on. He doesn't want just Ukraine. He wants most of Eastern Europe. And he wants NATO out of the members uh, that joined it from 1997. So it's a lot of countries involved, and it's a very big deal not only for Putin, but for NATO. Do you buy the comparison? I've heard people make the comparison to, well, how would we like it if if uh, Russia put uh, weapons uh, on, the, on our border with Mexico? In other words, do you buy the argument that he's moving into Ukraine because we've scared him into doing it? <laughs> Hardly. Uh, Putin is not somebody who scares easily or well. He's the man who said, I think about six or seven years ago, that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, he wants to reestablish Russian hegemony over the former Soviet states, and he's going about it gradually in spurts and starts, uh, and he'll probably do more in Ukraine uh, than less. But I don't think at this point he's likely to go ahead with a full-scale invasion. Does he really even have to? I mean, if he topples that government uh, in, in, in any number of bloodless ways, doesn't he get the same thing? Well, probably, but I don't think that it would be possible to topple that government in a bloodless coup. Uh, I think there would be several different aspects to it if that's what they try. Uh, but what I expect to happen is a gradual, well, a sudden, uh, but then slowing movement through the Donbass region in eastern uh, Ukraine uh, to take more territory. I mean, they annexed uh, Crimea in 2014. It's now eight, almost eight years later. Uh, there's no reason for him not to go into the Donbass region and annex that. I mean, there's been fighting going on there since 2014. So uh, there's ways to do it. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Biden just invited him to make a minor incursion mm. last yeah. week. So, I mean, who the heck knows what, what Biden is thinking? But uh, Putin is playing a very crafty game. We, we, knew, we do need a chart uh, to indicate what minor incursions are. Um, what about, <laughs> I, I've also heard some experts talk about the weather that uh, there's going to be an optimal, that, that, that like now is an optimal time, but in a couple of months uh, there'll be a, a thaw. Is that actually still a thing for troop movements over there? I don't think so. I mean, there could be advantages in weather and disadvantages, but the Russian troops are going to go or not go regardless of the weather. You know, they have all-weather interceptor fighters. They have all-weather mm -hmm. fighter bombers, uh, and they've got an enormous amount of ground troops gathered up there. Uh, over a hundred and about a hundred thousand last I heard, and no, not only uh, on the eastern border of Ukraine and within Donbass, but also in Belarus. Don't forget, Ukraine's northern border is a country completely controlled by Putin. Lukashenko, the government, the prime minister, president, wherever he's calling him today, uh, is there. Uh, is basically a puppet of Putin. So Russian troops are already in Belarus. They can be in Ukraine very quickly from there and from. Uh, the eastern border over, uh, you know, from from Russia. 
is it getting too far out in front of the uh, you know game, I guess, or the script to worry about how this might embolden, say, China with Taiwan or Iran or somebody else? I don't think it's too far ahead. I think it's something that we obviously have to recognize and, you know, hopefully plan for. Uh, you know, on Iran, of course, you've got uh, President Biden greenlighting South Korea, uh, releasing, I think it was $18 million in uh, frozen uh, Iranian funds so the Iranians could pay their U.N. dues this week. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that's going on. It's a completely appeasing action. And I think Taiwan... I would be surprised if the Chinese did not attack it within the next year. Uh, it's going to be, wow. it's, a, it's an obvious target. It's a very good target for them. It's something they've claimed since, well, since the Taiwanese set up a separate country. So, you know, basically they have to go after it at some point. I think they're looking at us now as entirely weak and frankly incoherent. So there's no reason for them not to do that at some point very soon. All right. Read them in the American Spectator, Washington Times, Jed Babin on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Jed, thank you tonight. Thank you. Our next guest wrote the book on what we're about to talk about, the Supreme Court uh, agreeing to review uh, the case of of, uh, what they call uh, race as a plus factor in college admissions, what I would call two wrongs don't make a right. His book is An Inconvenient Minority. He's also the president of Color Us United. Kenny Hsu, back with us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. And, Kenny, it's great to have you back. I want to say, by the way, the last time you were with us, I had just received your book. Since then, I've been able to read it, and it is fantastic. So it's c- congratulations on that, first of all. Wow. Th- I mean, thank you. I, I really appreciate the compliments. No, I, I loved it, and it, it fired me up for this whole issue and i know you're excited that the supreme court took this case i mean this is a a pretty you know there's a lot of really hot button issues on the court's docket and this is going to be one of them absolutely i'm really excited you know this case which is the subject one of the subjects of my book an inconvenient minority is really all about what kind of society do we want to live in okay do we want our elites to treat us on the basis of race again I don't care if you're trying to treat us on the basis of race to help me or to say, you know, or to propagate some kind of narrative that I'm a victim, but I don't want you to use my race for me or against me. But that's exactly what Harvard does. You know, they discriminate against Asian Americans. They consider Asian Americans an overrepresented group. They consider blacks and Hispanics an underrepresented group. So in order order to make the underrepresented more represented, they give artificial preferences to blacks and Hispanics against Asian Americans to the exclusion of them. Now, this idea got some validity from a Supreme Court decision of about 20 years ago when they said that race could be a plus factor. Um, Do you think that was wrong at the time, and has that gotten out of control or sort of is it sort of being used as cover to do whatever they feel like doing now? Yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, the, the, you're talking about the Supreme Court case, Regents of California versus Bakke, which is the 1978 case um, that allowed recent admissions. This new case that the Supreme Court just took up, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, is potentially could overturn that last decision. 
And, of course, the reason why the last decision was made, the reason why colleges can do what no other organization or institution can in America, which is treat people on the basis of race, is because of this diversity standard, which is this basically this fake idea that, um, that a diverse student body, you know, helps the student body's experiences and, every, and everything like that. Forget about that just being strong enough of a justification to discriminate on the basis of race. That actually, there's actually no evidence to actually suggest mm-hmm. that. There's no evidence mm-hmm. to say that, especially at the expense of admitting the most qualified candidate, a more racially diverse student body can actually help a student body's composition. Well, it's also provably untrue and painfully for some students untrue that all students admitted to a certain class will all thrive because they were admitted you're you're putting students in a position to fail just so you can say look how diverse our our freshman class is exactly you know you are um the the studies show this again and again when you admit a student based on race who is less than qualified compared to the rest of his student body that student tends to struggle tends to graduate at the bottom of the class higher rates of depression, lower rates of graduation. Um, And the sad part is if you put that student and you match that student in a university in which he's equipped to compete, it boosts his confidence. It gives him, you know, greater strength and ability to graduate at the top of his class, which will lead to better transfer opportunities and better job opportunities in the future. You're only hamstringing these students by preferentially treating them in the admissions process. You're not helping them. Mm. We're talking with Kenny Shu, who wrote the book, An Inconvenient Minority, uh, about this issue and about uh, the uh, sort of the broader challenges that Asian Americans are facing. Um, One of the things that you talk about in the book, and I've talked about this with friends of mine, is um, we're seeing it with the critical race theory debate. We're seeing it at some of the school board controversies. Um, Asian Americans are uh, getting a higher profile and a louder voice um, on more and more issues. And I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think they were taken for granted as a group of people, and I know I'm, I'm generalizing, who would be quiet, who would avoid political controversy or political involvement. Um, and I think that's becoming, to use your word, very inconvenient for a lot of elites right now. I mean, I think so. This is why they're the uh, inconvenient minority, because I think Asian Americans are starting to get a voice out in the political discourse because they realize that the left's racial narrative does not have a place for them. I mean, think about it. You know, where are you as an Asian American? Are you with the privileged white people who are need to, you know, repent for their whiteness and everything like that? Or are you with the oppressed black people? And and your objective is to pander to audiences and saying, I'm a victim, I'm oppressed. That does not describe so many Asian American stories where Asian Americans come here with nothing, no generational wealth, no privilege, nothing. And because of hard work and reliance on meritocracy, they've actually become some of the most successful ethnic groups in the country today. And it has nothing to do with their race. They have higher um, bachelor degree attainment, higher household income, higher socioeconomic status. And they completely inconvenience this narrative that you have to be either a privileged or an oppressed class. In fact, the American dream is real, and with enough hard work, with self-reliance, with good business and educational skills, you can rise up in American society. 
Now, I know you mentioned the Baki case from the 70s. I, I was also thinking about the, I think it's called the Gruder case from about uh-huh. 20 years ago, where they said, uh, th- that was where they took kind of a half measure, right? And they said, well, um, you, you can't have quotas, but race can be a plus factor uh, to achieve diversity. Do you think this Supreme Court is apt to make a very clear-cut decision or kind of, you know, shades of gray, maybe maybe dial back or try to define what they meant by plus factor 20 years ago? I think they should not only make a clear decision, they should make a 9-0 decision because this, the central, if you think about it, the central principle of liberalism, of, of a liberal government structure is we're not going to look at your background, we're not going to, we're just going to treat you on the basis of the content of your character, not the color mm. of your skin, right? Mm. I mean, that, that's, that, that should be a quintessential American principle. That's the principle that struck down Brown the Board of Education. That's the principle that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1965. This is very much within the liberal tradition, only this time the actors doing it are doing it, are attempting to do it on behalf of what they call the oppressed race rather than to oppress the race. Mm. But the principle remains the same. You cannot treat people on the basis of the color of their skin. Kenny Shu's book is An Inconvenient Truth, and he's also the president of Color Us United. Hope you'll come back again. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. An inconvenient minority, I'm sorry. An inconvenient minority, no worries. That's right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, Yeah, an inconvenient minority. Great book, great read. We appreciate having him. We'll hope he'll come back again real soon. I saw, um, I follow uh, on Twitter... Sean Ono Lennon. Okay, so Sean Ono Lennon is the son of John and Yoko. And he's an interesting guy because he's not really liberal or conservative. He has a lot of positions I disagree with. He's against fracking. Uh, but he, he's been talking a lot about wokeism, and he may have come up with the best definition of wokeism I've ever heard. He says, to be truly woke, you have to believe two wrongs make a right and that's what race-based admissions is doing it's 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 putting across the argument the two wrongs pa- a past wrong and now a present wrong will somehow add up to things being right i think he's right about that so this school board member in pennsylvania uh, a guy named ronald robinson uh, wrote a uh, Richard Robinson, excuse me, wrote a uh, an op-ed piece for his local paper, and um, the title of it, and you'll you'll see where this is going. So he's a member of the school board. The title of his op-ed is, "With all due respect, no, I don't work for you." With all due respect, no, I don't work for you. He says, with all due respect to the men and women who snarl, I'm a taxpayer, you work for me. No, I don't work for you. I was elected by people who voted to represent you. It is not the same thing. That's an incoherent sentence, by the way. Um, Actually, Mr. Robinson, you do work for us. That's how it works. School board members work for the taxpayers as well as parents in that community. Teachers, administrators, custodians, coaches, 
all work for the taxpayers and parents of that community. Uh, it, it, it is so clear that that is the case that to have somebody flippantly denying that tells you we have a very serious problem. He goes on to say, which again undercuts his whole argument, you may be surprised to learn that every member of the school board is a taxpayer too. Nope, I'm not surprised. I would assume that. I assume that if you were on the school board in Town X, you probably live in Town X or County X or District X, and you are a taxpayer. You are one like we are. He even says, I come from a long line of taxpaying men and women. Give him a cookie. That's great. So do I. But you do work for people when you represent them. And if you know anything about history, the origins of public education, and I think origins matter, okay, the origins of public education in America go back to the one-room schoolhouse. And the one-room schoolhouse had a schoolmaster or schoolmistress who was hired by, guess who? Local parents. And vetted for qualities that were deemed attractive and important in that community. And I'm sure it was different from one place to another, from one state to another, or from different, you know, cultural climes. But they wanted a school mistress or school master who would suit them and educate their kids in the manner they expected. That's that's where public education comes from. You don't have to like it, but then if you don't like it, you shouldn't go into it. He says, um, with all due respect, by the way, when people say with all due respect to you, they're really saying F you, basically. He says, with all due respect to parents who declare Keep this masking nonsense up and I will pull my child out of school and you'll lose money and you'll be sorry. He says, framing your choice this way makes you sound like a bully. Still, it is your choice. Nobody is taking choice away from you. Well, he's right that nobody is taking choice away from these parents. And many of them will leave the public school system and are leaving. But there are also parents who can't make that move. I mean, it's easy to say, just leave if you don't like it. But there are people who can't. And when they do, they still remain taxpayers. Remember, Rich, you were telling us that earlier in your thoughtful essay. So even if I live in Town X and I get fed up with the mask mandate or the critical race theory or whatever it is, and I pull my kid out and I put him in a parochial school or I put her in a, you know, a, a home school, I'm still paying those taxes. So you do still work for me. It might be less emotional for me, but it's no less a case of who you answer to. And with all due respect... Our choice also involves finding another school board member in the next election. You know, people have started showing up to these school board meetings, and it's a shocker. It's been a game changer. But the thing that hasn't happened yet, the the 
the other shoe that needs to drop <clears throat> is, and it's it's happened in a few places, but it still is relatively rare for school board members anywhere who are running for re-election to actually lose that election. I'm going to tell you, I'm, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, having an elected school board position in America today is the closest thing to a sinecure, it's the closest thing to a sure thing of any elected job we have. You are more in danger of losing a congressional seat or a municipal office than you are in danger of losing those school board seats. When that starts to happen, when the votes you've cast or the dismissive attitude you take actually catches up with you at the next ballot box, at the next election, I predict there will be far fewer, uh, you know, riding high in the saddle people like this guy. Or some of the videos you've seen where the school board members are, you know, belittling the parents or scolding them or telling them to shut up or having the police escort them out of there or whatever it is. It's, it, that will... That will that will be waning when they actually are at risk of losing the seat. They're not right now. By the way, somebody I really love, Mary Catherine Ham, one of one of our great, uh, in my opinion, one of our great conservative writers, just a real gem. Uh, she wrote a piece for the Atlantic, and I give them credit for printing it because they're pretty liberal. But she wrote a piece for the Atlantic that is exactly what we have been talking about recently, you and I. It's entitled "Kids." shouldn't have to be resilient. And she talks about, and I don't know if you know this about her, but she, she says that she remembers six years ago, one, one Saturday afternoon, she got a call from the police with the news that her husband, and they had only recently been married, they were young, a young couple, they were starting a family, they had a baby and another one on the way. Her husband had been killed uh, on his bike. He was riding in a in a race uh, for charity, and he got killed. And he, you know, this left her, as you can imagine, um, personally, financially, spiritually uh, shattered. She writes in this article, I had to relearn my bravery after my husband died. And now a lot of people will have to do the same now that we're entering what looks like the endemic stage of COVID. And she goes on to talk about the feeling of being protective or overprotective for her kids. Her kids are now eight and six. But she recognizes that her fears for them are not always equivalent to or commensurate to the actual risk. If they want to go sledding, that's fun. That's safe. They should do it. She can't let her worries stop them. Tolerating risk for my kids is tough, she writes in the Atlantic. Tolerating risk for my kids is tough. But COVID parenting has passed the point of absurdity. And then she takes on the slogan of kids are resilient. And she says... Even if they are, they shouldn't have to be. It's not their job to be. She writes, children are 
the least at-risk population, but in many areas of the country, they continue to face draconian mitigation policies, either in their name or in the name of protecting their elders. She writes, we've let a thousand others flourish. Learning loss, destabilization of the public school system due to under-enrollment, self-harm, behavioral problems. So we've tried to save them from COVID, and we're harming them and hurting them in all of these other ways. Kids shouldn't have to be resilient. Boy, I... I just think it's beautifully said and right on. And the reason this is important, and the reason I think it's important that a mom wrote this, is that saying something is quote-unquote for the children is one of those ways that they try to shut down an argument. When you're debating somebody and you get called a racist, the reason you're called a racist is to shut you down. It's to stun you. It's to throw you off track. So instead of arguing the point or making the point or finishing the point, now you sidetrack over to, to disproving a negative. Well, no, no, I'm, no, I'm not. A, how, how can you say that? No, I'm not. They want you to do that. They want you to get flustered and insistent that you're not a racist. Of course, no matter what you say, they're not going to correct themselves or apologize for calling you that because it worked. It's the same thing when they invoke children. If a policy is invoked for the children, in the name of the children, for the good of the children, it might be, but more often than not, that is just another verbal trick or trap to get you to shut up and comply. What do you want to do, kill children? Don't you care about children? And... It's really important that we learn to not do this or go with this because then we can finally have the debate, get to some common sense, and stop letting panic porn over COVID rule the day, which is what's happening right now. We're letting the people that are most freaked out make the rules and set the risk tolerance for everyone. That's not how it's supposed to work. I mean, risk tolerance is a very personal thing, and I I respect people that want to wear masks and want to avoid this and avoid that, and more power to you, as long as you don't make your risk tolerance mine. What do you think about it? On the JR poll today, powered by Stevens Roofing, we're asking you, do you speak more than one language? KTSA News had a story today about how San Antonio is the fourth most uh, bilingual city in the country. So do you speak more than one language on the JR poll? And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Mary Catherine Hamm, who's a conservative commentator and columnist. I think she's on CNN these days. Um, but really just a, a smart, funny, uh, observant uh, commentator. Wrote a piece for The Atlantic entitled, Kids Shouldn't Have to Be Resilient. Because that's been the that's been the chorus, right? When we talk about um, oh, distance learning hasn't worked, or uh, there's been a great learning loss during that time, or uh, kids are having to sit on the ground outside to eat lunch at school. Yeah, kids are resilient. 
say, the people who really don't want to have to justify or explain these things. And we're supposed to just take that as, well, you know, even if we're wrong or this is an overreaction or it's draconian, they're resilient. And, you know, there was a time when I would have said those words and meant them, and and in some ways kids are resilient. I've seen it in my own daughter. I've seen it in my own life. But it's actually pretty, it's a pretty crappy comeback in a day and age when all the data indicate uh, the children of COVID are not resilient. Uh, They have suffered educationally, emotionally, developmentally. And they're not having a very good time. And um, we need to ask ourselves, and, and she points this out in the article, all right, in the beginning of COVID, when you don't know anything about anything, Maybe, uh, you know, emergency measures or one-size-fits-all approaches were reasonable. But doing that now, having school districts around the country that are in indefinite lockdown, like Flint, Michigan, that's obscene. She writes, children are the least at-risk population, but in many areas of the country they continue to face Draconian mitigation, either in their name, low chance of serious COVID complications doesn't mean no chance, or in the name of protecting their elders. She writes, as David Leanhart wrote in the New York Times, we've inflicted, quote, more harm to children in exchange for less harm to adults. It's a devastating observation. It's true. She writes, you don't have to be a psychologist to see something wrong with that exchange. In our focus on one threat, we've let a thousand others flourish. Learning loss, destabilization of the public school system due to under-enrollment, self-harm, behavioral problems. But children are resilient. Most children, she writes, are neither in grave danger, nor do they pose a grave danger, especially now that vaccines are widely freely available, but we routinely treat them as if they were. And the media have fanned the flames of parents' fears instead of quelling them. And, and so we're kind of, she writes, stuck in the mode that we were in at the beginning. But that mode doesn't make any sense anymore. She talks about Justice Sotomayor and what she calls the casual and rampant exaggeration of risk to children during the Supreme Court's oral arguments earlier this month when the justice estimated there were 100,000 children in hospitals in serious condition with COVID, many on ventilators. The real number is under 5,000. So, are you going to continue to fall for the, oh, well, kids are resilient. Are you going to continue to fall for the, what, do you not care about children? Do you hate them? By the way, How much longer are really good people? And I'm going to presume that you're a really good person. And if you have children, I'm going to presume that you are an unselfish, trying your best, loving parent. How much longer are you going to let people who not only don't know your children, but don't know you, tell you that your decision-making and your risk tolerance or risk management is no good. 
is, is murderous. You have blood on your hands. You know, I really don't think you would let somebody come up to you and talk to you that way. And yet we're letting the people that run the country, people that run Fortune 500 companies, people that run the schools, we're letting them talk to us that way. If it weren't for them, our kids would all be dead. We have no idea what we're doing. It's a wonder they've lived this long. And they don't really belong to you. They belong to all of us. It's the village. And she calls it in the article the child sacrifice form of debate, meaning if you don't agree with them, if you don't buy into mandatory masks or whatever they are preaching this week or next week, well, then you're just basically willing to sacrifice your children. You're selfish. It's a version of the thing they, they it's, it's the jive they ran on, on people in general, right? If you're going to work, you're selfish. Oh, I thought I was being productive and industrious. No, you're selfish. We'll pay you to stay home. Will you just stay home? But no, you've got to go to work and grab your dollars, and you're going to kill everybody with COVID. So that's the that's the, the that was the framework, right? And now they've they've adapted that for well, if we reopen the schools, it'll kill everybody. You don't care about kids. She writes, kids are resilient. Has been a refrain of the pandemic used to justify the removal of regular school, birthday parties, talking with friends at lunch. But it's not a kid's job to be resilient. It's a parent's job to be resilient for them, to spare them from our fears and worries. The longer we abdicate that responsibility, the more damage we will do. It's a great piece. I agree with her. What do you think? Tell me what you think. 210-599-5555. You know what it put me in mind of, and and. You, you would have to have been listening to us for quite a while to remember this. But do you remember years ago we had a, an author on the show? And I, I will say to this day, I don't know if we've had more reaction to any one book than we had to this gentleman's book. He wrote a book called Ten Ways to Kill the Imagination of Your Children. Very provocative title. What the hell? What is he talking Why would I want to do that? But the book was about what they call overprotective or helicopter parenting where you you know you you so totally manage your your kids every waking minute that he or she never like daydreams or makes up a game in the backyard or lays on their back and looks up at the clouds or rides their bike all day with friends and doesn't come home till the street lights come on like we used to do and he says you're killing their imagination you're you're slowly killing them by doing that but you do it because you have been guilted into doing it. That's why helicopter parents are the way they are. They've heard about child abduction and stranger danger. And didn't you know there's a website where you can look up the, the predators in your neighborhood and your zip code? So you, you've been made to be that way, and you're just doing what you see everybody else doing or what you think is expected of you. I think that's at work here. I think she's writing about that same thing that he wrote about, Anthony Esselin. Um, so... This big story that's been floating around about uh, President Biden calling uh, uh, Peter Ducey a bad word, and then um, apparently phoning Peter Ducey in the evening 
to say uh, nothing personal, champ, or <laughs> it was just businessman or whatever he said. Um, I was uh, when I was filling in for Sean Ryman this morning. I was asking the question: How would you know if you got a call from the president that it really was the president? I mean. Maybe it's a little less weird if you're a member of the White House press corps. Maybe the, maybe they do occasionally get a call from President Biden or whoever the president is. But, I mean, if you and I, if, if we were to get a call from somebody purporting to be the president, how would we know? Like, I would just assume that's a prank. I, I know so many people that can do good voice impressions and really good ones. I don't just mean, like, people that are professional impersonators. I mean, I know guys in radio that... that would be able to do Biden's voice or comedians. I would think it was Roman Garcia or Trey Ware or somebody like that. I would think, well, you know, it's, this isn't the president. And um, how would you know that you were getting a call from the president? And um, a lady wrote to me, I, I don't want to read the whole letter, and it was a very sweet letter, and I, I don't want to use her name, but a lady wrote to me today um, who once had a phone call from President George W. Bush uh, owing to a uh, circumstance in her family, its military family, and uh, she said they um, they come on the line and they say, "Will you please hold for the president?" And she had the reaction I was citing, which you know she was positive this was a prank or a joke or whatever, but she she recognized his voice, and there were circumstances that made his call. Maybe not predictable, but you know it had it had context because again of something that had happened to them. Um, so that got me to thinking today, and this is what I want to ask you. And we're going to open up the phone lines right now two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Who is the most famous person you have ever spoken with? And it could be in person, it could be on the phone. Who's the most famous person? That you've ever actually spoken with. I'm not, not, not like I, I talk back to them on television when, uh, oh, when this actor comes on, I talk back to them. I mean, actually, you had a conversation with them. Maybe they came into your business. Maybe they, um, maybe you met them somewhere. Maybe you were traveling. You ran into them at an airport. Who's the most famous person you've ever spoken with? And what were the circumstances of that? I want to hear that. 210 599 5555. Rock star, media person, politician. Who was it? Where was it? Maybe you have more than one. Pick the best one, okay? You know, I used to work in New Hampshire, in radio in New Hampshire. And one of the cool things about New Hampshire is it's a pretty, it's a pretty small state. And it's a pretty lightly populated state, or it was when I worked there. It's probably more heavily settled now. Um but because it's the first in the nation presidential primary in an election year, uh, the candidates are all over New Hampshire. And if there's a lot of people running for president, they carpet the state. You, you, you turn around and bump into them. You know, you, you go like from one thing to another and you see one over here and two blocks down, here's another candidate. So a lot of people, when I would talk to people in New Hampshire, they'd be like, Oh yeah, I met Ronald Reagan and I met. You know, Jimmy Carter, and I met this one, and I met that one, I met Gary Hart, and I met Walter Mondale, and um, very routine about it. And that was the thing about New Hampshireites. You always had to act very blasé about the, you know, you couldn't be all giddy. 
So who's the most famous person you ever had a conversation with? 210-599-5555. Mike's on the radio. Mike, good afternoon, yes. sir. Welcome. How you doing? Um, had a, met Yogi Berra back in 1980 when he was coaching the Yankees. Wow. wow. How did that happen? Uh, my wife and I went up to Arlington to see the Yankees and the Rangers. Ended up staying in the same hotel the Yanks were in. And after the game, I went down to the lobby to see if I could get some autographs. And Yogi was sitting out front waiting for a cab. Wow. And, we sat and I mean, here's a guy He's a guy you could not mistake for anyone else, right? I no, mean, you recognize yeah, Yogi Berra instantly. How yeah, was he to meet? He is the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. It was like talking to my grandfather. Yeah. I just can't say enough nice things about him. Because wouldn't it be awful if there was somebody you really admired... Yeah. And you had this vision of how they would be, and then when you met them, they were the opposite. That'd be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yogi was great. I was on active duty at the time. We compared notes about being in the military and all that. He was just wonderful to talk to. That is a very cool story. Thank you, Mike. Fox News' Peter Ducey apparently got a call from the president last night after the president had called him an SOB uh, to clear the air. And... um I, I, I presume Peter Ducey would be hard to fool because he's around President Biden regularly. And it's, con, you know, it, it, there's sort of a context, right? Like I work at the White House. I work for the, I cover the president. I could imagine that I would know the people around the president. I would recognize them if they call me and they say, Hey, hold the line. The president's going to talk to you. That, that you would, you would believe if you're him. If you and I were to get that call or we picked up the phone and it's, Oh, I'm, I'm President Biden. I mean, you're just going to think that's a prank. You're not going to believe it. Who's the most famous person you've ever talked to, and what were the what was the story of that? Maybe it was on the phone. Maybe it was in person. Uh, Karen is on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSa. Hi, Karen. Hi, Jack. It's Karen from Uvalde. How are you? It's Karen from Uvalde. You, it's like <laughs> that's your. It's like that's like your legal name now, right? It's not just it's Karen. Legal. It's Karen from Uvalde. You should say that on your driver's license. Yeah, it's just between you and me. Um, The most famous person I ever talked to was Muhammad Ali. And the story was I was working at uh, International Services at A&M, and it's part of student services, and they brought him for a lecture. And they had a reception for the staff where we could stand in a line and shake his hand. And Mm -hmm. the whole way up the line, I'm thinking about what am I going to say when it's my turn to say something to him. And I had followed him. I was crazy about him. And I had followed him, and I knew a million stories about him. But I was thinking about how he always said, ain't I pretty? And there's not a there, – when I saw him, there's, it was like 81, 82. There was not a mark on him. And so when I got to him and took his hand, or he took my hand, I said to him, you are so beautiful. And he reached <laughs> over and kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> You are an operator, Karen. Look at you. No, no, it was really from the heart. It really was. That I was nice. trying to give it some thought, but he yeah. you wouldn't believe how gorgeous he was. There was not a mark on him. And for him to reach over and kiss me, oh my goodness. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I don't know if he said anything to me after that or not. I couldn't tell you. That's what a great story. That that is a great, and and you know, you're telling a story that if I heard you right, this is 40 years ago, but you're you're telling it like it happened yesterday. Yeah. Right. Really cool. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate that. Good to hear from you. Uh, Jeff is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, Jack. Uh, I was about 12 years old, uh, 1965, 66. 
living north of Kansas City, and in the off season, the Chiefs would uh, players would come around to little schools and donate football football gear and stuff like that to the program. Right? I got to meet Buck Buchanan. Oh wow, Buck yeah, Buchanan! What a giant! Uh, oh my God! Let me tell you, this is the story. This is how I remember this. My dad was uh, with me when I reached up to shake his hand. My hand and half my arm disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> into his he was ahead of his head. time because, for folks that don't know, Buck, Buck Buchanan played for the uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. He was a tackle, and he was like, what is he like six eight or something, six nine or something? Oh my god! Oh my god! Very big, like all in every way. Yeah. Yes. And I yes. think today it might not stand out as much because the players have gotten bigger. But in that era, mm-hmm. that was huge. Well, you know, and to this day, they still have a Buck Buchanan Day in Kansas City. Is that right? Yeah, they still. He was just. He was. He was kind of like a David Robinson was here. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Still yeah. is here. Uh, Hall of Fame guy, of college Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah. And a gentleman, you know. That's nice. But, uh, I, yeah. To this day, I still remember that. That is a great. St- and how old were you again? Uh, eleven or twelve. Right. So again, you, you know, that's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Karen's story. You, your memory of it is as if it just happened. Oh man, I love telling this story to the grandkids and stuff. They don't know who the hell he is, but you know, uh, I tell them the <laughs> they story can Google him. My, my arm disappearing. I really, it was like he just. Oh my yeah. God, you know. And that's incredible. The, I got to see two games with the Kansas City Chiefs. They were the first professional team I ever saw. Mm-hmm. You know. Anything, yeah, yeah. Well, I think great. they have. A, I think they have a good shot in a couple of weeks. I'm hoping so. I'm I'm rooting for them. I bet you are. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Who's the most famous person you've ever spoken with, met in any way for any reason? Want to hear that story? And Esteban is on KTSA. Hi, Esteban. Hi, I've I've met several, but what was entertaining was covering a fight behind Paul Rodriguez. The comedian. Mm. It was like watching a fight with my late Theo Joe because the commentary I was hearing, this guy should have done ringside commentary. And I oh, really? I had to compliment him. I said, man, this is like watching boxing with my Uncle Joe. It was hilarious, smart, and so it just, yeah, I was running my boxing website. I was ringside at Freeman Coliseum, and he was right behind me. Yeah. And, dude, uh, I would have paid $20 to hear the commentary yeah. I heard from his mouth. and I had to That's cool. Was it was it that he was being funny, or was it that he had, like, a lot of knowledge about boxing, or both? both. Or, yeah. he, he, he made very witty comments about what was actually going on. So he, he talked like a boxing fan who was a comedian, yeah. and who knew a lot about the sport. That's a great story, and and you threw in the Freeman Coliseum memory to boot. We can't get can't can't get too many of those these days. Thank you, Esteban. All right, Paul Rodriguez. Uh, memories of Freeman Coliseum and a boxing match. Let me get to Bob here on KTSa. Hi, Bob. Hello. Back in, uh, in the middle '60s, '65, '66, Willie yeah. Nelson was just starting to get known. 
And uh, in Junction, Texas, we had uh, horse races back then, and they had hired Willie to come and play at our race dance. And I was about 15, 16 years old then. And the kids back then, we were just, the parents hated him, but all the kids loved him. And and all of a sudden, we went to the dance, and, and there he was. Wow. But he's not, he wasn't like, uh, you know, Willie today, like some of his early uh, covers on his albums. He had a flat top haircut. Yep. He had uh, khaki pants on with black patent or plastic boots on. Yep. And he was playing a 12 string guitar. And uh, he, he didn't have trigger then. And uh, Johnny Bush was his uh, drummer. Wow. And, uh, Holy I cow. I'm 71 now, and and been a lifetime Willie fan, and always will. Yeah. That is a great that is a great story. Yeah, I mean, kids today they're lucky if there's a DJ at their dance. Certainly not going to be somebody like Willie Nelson. That's great. That's a great story, Bob. Thank you. We're talking about the most famous person you've ever spoken with or met. Really cool stories, and. Um, Prompted by, you know, I was I was speculating earlier, how would it work if you got a phone call from, say, and it could be the President of the United States, I guess it could be the, you know, the Queen of England, it could be the Pope, it could, I mean, it's so unlikely that you would be getting the call, or I would be getting the call, that we would just assume it was a joke or a prank, we might even say something, you know, rude... <laughs> I bet, I'll bet that happens, right? I would imagine presidents are used to people hanging up on them. Like, I, you're, oh, sure, you're the president. Click. So anyway, uh, doesn't have to be a president, but who's the most famous person you ever spoke with? And uh, up next is Ed on KTSA. All right, Ed, let's have it. Well, good afternoon. I met Milton Friedman. Oh, the economist. 1976 yeah. Nobel laureate in economics. Hmm. How did that come about? Uh, I was a graduate student, and uh, he was lecturing under the auspices of an endowed chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also delivered the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the graduation speech, and um, like a dummy, I didn't fill out the paperwork properly, and I, uh, I, I didn't get to put on the uniform and everything, but I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was finished with it. I also met Tom Saul under the same circumstances. Wow, those are those are two giants. You know, Milton Friedman. I, I always think of him as when he would go on like um, the Phil Donahue show and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that was that was an incredible thing that an economist would be a guest on a show like that. But he made economics accessible to everyone who heard him. Right? Uh, he most certainly did. Um, and and there was the TV show that he did based on his book, uh, Free right. Shoes, as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever see. At the same see. time, he could also get pretty esoteric. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we'll ever see anybody like a Milton Friedman or a Thomas Sowell or a Walter Williams again. I think those guys like that are very, very rare. But that's a great memory, Ed. Thank you. I appreciate your hanging on. I appreciate your call. Uh, Charlie is on KTSA. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Jack. How are you doing? Good, sir. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Well, um, I've lived a nice 28 years here, and I did karate with David Robinson's son. I worked at Freddy's and had Kawhi Leonard as a regular drive-thru customer. But mm-hmm. the person I like to tell you about 
is uh, somebody you might know, uh, Mr. Jeff Roper, used to be a personality here in KSAT and did a bunch of radio around the place, actually got a few Hall of Fame awards there. Uh, funny enough, I walked into uh, the Bernie radio station over at another channel and uh, spent just about every single afternoon uh, pretty much interning for Mr. Jeff Roper uh, for about okay. three or four months, so I actually had a relationship with the guy. <laughs> oh, okay. So that really made a, even though you you met those other famous people, this is the one that really made an impression on you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He's up in Idaho now and uh, still keep in touch. So, uh, oh, very nice. Not, not ultra famous, but somebody up there. Okay. Well, it mattered to you. That's what that's what counts. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. Um, let's see. Where are we going here next? Uh, you know what, Don? You may need to take control of this because these buttons are not working. So let's go to line one, if you would, please, and let's get Keith on KTSA. Hi, Keith. Hey, Jack. Um, let's see. I don't know. A few years ago, maybe when I was about 40 or 50, I don't know, a few years ago, when uh, before before he got canceled, like everybody else, uh, Garrison Keeler from Prairie Home Companion. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's fun. I, I watched... Uh, Watched him put on a, a presentation here in town, and then went to a, an after after show dinner, and mm. he's quite a character. Is he the same? Does he seem the same one on one as he does when he's he is. before? Yeah, he is. We we did a little uh, a photo op. Hey, take my picture, and he he leaned over to me and he put his arm on my shoulder. He's that tall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, wow. wow! Yep. Yeah. That's a fun. great story. That's a great story. A yeah, guy. great storyteller, Garrison Keeler. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. Appreciate it, sir. Um, this isn't really. I mean, I in radio you meet or you interview famous people, but um, just like for randomly running into someone, uh, two that come to mind really quickly. I was at JFK, um, and I get to the airport very early for flights that's just a quirk of mine so sometimes i mean i get there so early the people in the gate area are for the preceding flight not even my flight but anyway i got to my gate area and there was only one person this was a sunday afternoon and you think of jfk being a very busy airport but there was no one but one woman sitting um in a seat kind of in the middle of everything and i didn't want to sit Super close, but I didn't want to sit as far away as I possibly could and look antisocial. So I'm walking over to find a seat that's, you know, not too close, not too far. And I, I'm looking at her and I'm saying, boy, she really looks like, and then I realized it was, uh, Deborah Norville, who had been the, um, she, she was on the Today Show at one point. She took over for Jane Pauley on the Today Show and then she did, um, I think it was Inside Edition or one of those shows. And that's what she was doing at the time that I met her. So we did talk, and just, just a little, because I didn't want to be geeky, but, you know, we're in the same business. And um, whenever I had watched Deborah Norville on television, she always seemed kind of cold, which worked against her, I think, in her career. Uh, people felt she was not as, uh, I don't know, war- she didn't have warmth on camera. You may remember... Uh, on the Today Show, she was replaced by Katie Couric, who was very bubbly and effervescent and effusive. And anyway, in person, Deborah Norville was very nice. 
and I, I didn't say this to her, but I thought, boy, people should get to know you like this rather than the way it is on television. But I'm sure being on television is, is, is its own challenge. And then one time, this was way back in the 90s, um, I was on a plane and I was going, I, I was taking the woman I was dating down here up to meet my parents. And we're sitting in our seats on the plane, and down the aisle comes, and you, you may not know who this is unless you're a political junkie, but Tommy Thompson was the governor of Wisconsin, and he ran for president. And we used to have him on the show, um, on the talk show, and I wouldn't by any means say that we had become friends, but I recognized him, and I was going to say something to him. And he said it to me first. He recognized me from the picture on, I guess, the website or whatever. And you cannot imagine when you're with your girlfriend and she's like, who was that? I go, oh, that was the, the governor of Wisconsin. <laughs> it's like, I just know people. You know, you know, the governors and I, we're always very close. Very thick. It was one of those moments you couldn't have set up. But, it, you know, I, it, I think I got a few points for that. If you got a phone call from a super famous, globally famous person, would you believe it was them or would you think you're being pranked? Who is the most famous person you've ever actually spoken with? Either in person or by phone. Maybe it was on your job. Maybe it was while you were traveling. 210-599-5555. Daryl is on KTSA. Hi, Daryl. Hi. I met uh, Larry Cannon from the Spurs. About oh yeah, ago. yeah. Uh, what was that I like? My, I met over over at my cousin's house, and uh, we met over at Larry King's house for uh, shooting fireworks on uh, New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. That was great. He he was a generous and kind man. And it's uh, kind of incredible how many really good guys have played for the Spurs. You know you. You wouldn't. You'd expect there might be a few, but there've been there've been a ton of them for one team. Yeah, yeah. He, he was really nice and beautiful house too. Uh, we went out to his house way out past sixteen oh four and and uh, shot fireworks over there. And this was uh, yeah about twenty twenty five years ago, and I was playing fireman. And my bucket of water, putting out all the firework fires and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Very good. That's a cool story. Thank you, Daryl. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Jolene is on KTSA. Hi, Jolene. Hi. Um, I was calling in because uh, in the mid-'80s, the USS America, an aircraft carrier that was involved in shooting down a, a Libyan jet fighter, you have to be pretty old to remember that, um, when the America was coming home, the first lady, uh, Mrs. Reagan, asked to fly out to the carrier, thank them for the bravery, and welcome them back. And she asked to be flown out early because she didn't want to delay the homecoming of the guys with their wives and families when they got mm-hmm. to the pier. Mm-hmm. And she brought her press corps with her, which made the CO and XO really nervous. And um, I was working for the carrier's headquarters command at that time. And I went up to my boss and I said, I need to fly out there. And he said, nah, you know, there were no women on any ships anywhere. 
<laughs> at that point. <laughs> and right. uh, I said, but you really need to send somebody because, you know, the press corps will need some help negotiating the place. So he right. let me go. And when I when her when she came aboard, uh, she was t- first doing a small tour of the ship before she actually talked to the troops. And I met her and shook her hand on the bridge. And she was so lovely. And I was so impressed to be shaking the hands of someone mm-hmm. of that caliber. Mm-hmm. And, and that's my story. That's a beautiful I story. I speak with Ronnie Re- Ronald Reagan's wife. <laughs> yeah, that is a beautiful story. I want to ask you, though, now you had probably seen her on television many times. Was she different yes. in person in some way? or? I've, I know she was described as being a very gracious lady. That was kind of her public persona. I can tell you that was also her private persona. She mm. was so good with the sailors. I mean, she just yeah. it shook everybody's hand possible and spoke with everybody she ran into so yeah. that it would be an even more memorable, memorable homecoming for those guys, although they were pretty pumped. Anyway, they'd been gone for nine months. So yeah. homecoming is always pretty exciting. That's a great story, and I, I, you, you remind us, I think, again, that the Reagan era wasn't just him. It was really the two of them. They were a, 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 a loving couple and a really just a great team. And uh, thank mm-hmm. you for that, Jolene. Great story. Uh, let's see here. Sam is on KTSA. Sam is the most famous person you've ever spoken with. Jack, are you there? Yes, Sam, now we have you. Sorry about that. Okay, no, it's okay. Uh, <clears throat> this happened in Dallas, and uh, uh, I'd heard that uh, Charlton Heston was going to have, like, this little meet and greet. And so I went over there, and uh, it turned out to be a book signing. He had written some coffee table book or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I went up and uh, introduced myself, and he has big hands and a strong handshake. And he asked me if uh, uh, if I wanted to sit down with him at the table, you know, where everybody was walking around. And, and he was a complete gentleman. And uh, hmm. uh, uh, after, like, 30 minutes, I thought, hey, you know, I better go buy his book. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I okay, went, yeah, that I probably is a good idea, yeah. I went and bought his book, and he said, hey, yeah. sit back down. And so I said, hey, you think you could autograph it? And he goes, sure. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to give this to my sister because my sister is a huge fan. And um, and he wrote, you know, my sister's name and how are you doing and God bless you. And um, all of, he was so – he was a complete gentleman. Um, anyway, um, it was like a week later, I ended up – my sister lived here in town – I lived up in Dallas and I came down here for the weekend and I gave her the book and she looked at it and, uh, it was kind of like his life story. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, she saw that he had written her a note <laughs> and she said, uh, written by the hand of God. No. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. And, and let me ask you the same question I asked Jolene. Was he the same in person as you had seen him on the screen? Yes, even more so. Yeah, he was a. I would imagine he had, he had that he was, deep voice and that presence, and yeah, yeah, and he still looked good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he he kept himself in shape, and uh, yeah. um, but yeah, that was a big thrill. That is a great story.
We set out this year to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away. I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed, and especially for you, Mr. Gore. From my cold, dead hands. Hmm. Charlton Heston is one of those people who, when he talks, sounds like he's doing a Charlton Heston impression, right? Like, it's impossible not to go, is that, is that him or is that like Rich Little doing him? Anyway, great voice. 210-599-5555. The most famous person you ever crossed paths with, met, spoke with. That's what we're talking about. And um, Diane is next on KTSA. Diane, welcome to the show. Hi, Hi there. Hi, Jack. I got to meet James Michener, the author that wrote Hawaii and Texas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the early 1980s, I was at a cattle sale down in South Texas, and he was the he was a guest there, and just randomly got introduced to him and spent 20 minutes talking to him about his research on the book Texas. It was before he wrote it; it was when he was mm-hmm. writing it, mm-hmm. and it was absolutely fascinating. Most interesting would, person I've ever talked to. Would you have? So you were introduced to him, right? Hmm. Do you, do you think you would have recognized him if you had not been introduced to him? No, no. He's kind of a, kind of a nondescript-looking guy, right? Yes, yes. You would never have guessed it was, he was that famous at this yeah. cattle drive. Yeah, no, I've seen pictures of him on <laughs> the books, and, and I, yeah, no, that's, that's, a cool, that's a cool story. And had you been a, a reader of his before that, or...? Yes, I had read some of his books before that, so mm-hmm. being able to talk to him was just you know, the, like the most wonderful thing that ever happened in my life up to that point. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's, it's always interesting that when you meet authors, if you've read their books or their book, I don't care who they are or how long they've been famous, you can tell that thrills them. Because they probably, most of the time, meet people who maybe know who they are, but, you know, oh, I'm not a reader or I don't, you know. They, they love meeting people that have actually read the book. Mm-hmm. That's, well, and that we is had always been true. stationed in Hawaii, so um, you know, I had that's why I had read the book, and yeah. <laughs> I was able to talk to him about it. But then he was researching Texas, and he was talking about all the different things that he was looking at to put in the book, and it was just fascinating. That's a great Very story. Thank, yeah, no, thank you for telling that, Diane. Great story, James Mishner, a prolific author. All right, Marsha's on KTSA. Hi, Marsha. Hi there. <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> but anyhow, um, I met uh, Eva Longoria. She came into the store that I was working at, which is a well-known fabric and craft store, and bought a sewing machine and I don't know how many hundreds of dollars of fabric so that she huh. could make clothes for her um, uh, niece huh. because she had no kids. I didn't know that Eva Longoria made clothes. Yeah, I didn't either until she came in and bought a sewing machine. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, you know, I guess it's a stereotype, but she always seems very glamorous, and you know, the red carpet. That's 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 kind of shocking that that she also has this sort of homespun side to her, right? How was she uh-huh. to meet? How did you how did you find her to meet? Well, she was she was I was she was paying me for the sewing machine and the fabric. 
Mm-hmm. Because I, as I said, I work in this store. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. What I meant was, what was she like? I, I understand how you oh, met her. I, I think, meant, what okay. was she like to um, meet? I thought she was. I thought she was very nice. Um, to be honest, my husband met her. Um, I guess on the same trip into San Antonio, and uh, he said she was very demanding and and not very friendly at all. Oh. So I don't know. You know, it's just. The, from so, so you got the you got the better you got the better deal there, I guess, huh? I guess the better deal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Marcia, thank you, Marcia. Meeting Eva Longoria buying a sewing machine—that's just yeah. uh, who would have saw that one coming? Very good, thank you, Marcia. Um, Blanca writes to Jack at KTSA dot com. In 1997 or so, I was working at HEB at 281 and 1604. My manager knew I was a book geek and told me this is Blanca writing told me that lady that writes is down in the middle of the store. I ran uh, up and down in every aisle. I found the lady that writes. It was Maya Angelo. I got to talk with her. Loved that moment, writes Blanca. It's incredible. I said, I said you know, Eva Longoria is at the sewing machine store. Maya Angelo's at HEB. Like, you know, I mean, no matter how famous these people are, they got to have stuff just like the rest of us, right? So... You would have thought that maybe Maya Angelou had somebody to go to H-E-B for her. Uh, Brad writes, uh, I drove Billie Jean King from a tennis tournament to the airport. About 45 minutes. Extremely nice. Biggest impression was of someone very ordinary, particularly given all her accomplishments. She told me she prefers to work in the tennis background and not so much in the spotlight. Yeah, Billie Jean King. 210-599-5555. John is on the radio. Hi, John. How are you all this evening? Good. How are you? In, uh, great. I was in San Antonio with my wife having dinner at a restaurant, and I'd gone up to go to the bathroom. And on the way in, there was a table of about seven people, and this one guy looked familiar, but I didn't think anything about it. So I went to the bathroom, came out, I was drying my hands, and this guy was laughing. And I looked at him, and I, I'll talk to anybody. I said, you know, you laugh like Tommy Lee Jones. And he looked at me, and he goes, that's because I am. And he put his hand out and shook my hand, and uh, he introduced himself. We talked for a moment. I said, you know, uh, Lonesome Dove had just come out and said, excellent movie. I said, but I really like Robert Duvall's character better. And he laughed at that. And so they were pleasant, and I said, nice meeting you, and sat down. Well, on the way out the door, he made an effort to come over and shake my hand again and say, John, it was Pleasure meeting you and, and, or, or seeing you again and like to see you again sometime. I said, okay, nice seeing you, Tommy. And my wife was sitting there with her mouth open <laughs> on, the, on the table going, was that Tommy Lee Jones? And I said, yes, it was. You know, she goes, well, I didn't know you knew him. I said, oh, I've, we've, our, we've known them for a long time. They're from San yeah. Saba. And, yeah. you know, and, and she's like, and so I've since divorced her and I never told her that I'd never just told her story how I met her, met him. Yeah. He didn't know him, but incredible guy. But uh, and another one quick one was Selena, when she was a little girl, grew up in our neighborhood. My dad owned a bakery, and her and her sister used to come in and buy cookies all the time, and they were very good friends of ours. And when she became famous, she used to come in and bring our our sales girls paraphernalia, clothing, CDs, and all, just a super lady. And, yeah. you know, we were I was moving across town on I-35 and listened to KEYS News, which is an AM down there, and they mm-hmm. said, Celine has been shot. We're just like, oh, yeah. my God. But yeah, got a couple of with some famous people. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great when people become famous and retain that sweetness and that, uh, 
and that kindness, uh, they don't lose it. So that's a gr- I'm, I'm glad you shared that. John, uh, John, thank you tonight for the call. I appreciate it. On the JR poll powered by Stevens Roofing, do you speak more than one language? Story today at KTSA.com says San Antonio is the fourth most bilingual city in the country. El Paso is number one. Uh, so we asked you, do you speak more than one language? 52% said no. 48% said yes. Some of them said C. A dad joke, right? Anyway, the JR poll powered by Stevens Roofing. You can find it at KTSA.com. We'll have a new question tomorrow at 4. And, of course, I'll be in for Sean Ryman tomorrow morning as well. I, I say, of course. Hopefully, Sean will be back very soon. But I will be in for him tomorrow uh, morning. Uh, the gentleman that called and talked about meeting um, Tommy Lee Jones at the restaurant, and he mentioned uh, Robert Duvall, reminded me, and this was years ago, we had a caller call into the dish about Bohannon's on Houston Street. Famous steakhouse, one of the finest restaurants in the city. But this guy had had a bad experience at Bohannon's, and I'm on the edge of my seat because I'm thinking, how, how could he have a bad experience at Bohannon's? And this was his complaint, and I'm not making this up. He said that he went to Bohannon's for dinner, and Robert Duvall was in the restaurant. And Robert Duvall created a distraction that people were buzzing about his presence and whispering and pointing, and the wait staff was distracted, and they were all trying to wait on his table and meet him. And this, this guy that called felt he had been slighted by the presence of Robert Duvall. Imagine going through life with that's your attitude. Oh, no, a celebrity. I'm going to have a terrible time. Yeah, that was his call. He zinged Bohannon's because Robert Duvall was there. Takes all kinds, right, to make the world go round. Uh, Eric is on KTSA. Hi, Eric. Good evening, Jack. Uh, I've met a famous person. Well, I've met several, but uh, one of the uh, one of the meetings that I had was with Neil McCoy. Happened to meet him in the hallway of uh, the Opryland Hotel. Uh, he said he was about to go and take a ride along with the local police officers in Nashville. But anyway, uh, I asked him out of curiosity. I said, Neil, let me ask you. I said, are you Native American? And he said, no. He And he stood up real proud and everything. He goes, no, my mother is uh, Filipino and my dad is American. I was like, Oh, okay. Wow, that is so cool. I know a lot of Filipino people, and I would have never guessed that he was Filipino. Interesting. Or at least part. Yeah, yeah great guy. Neil, Neil yeah, very good. All right, Neil McCoy. Eric met Neil McCoy at the Opryland Hotel. Let's get one more. I think this is a great way to end this conversation. Paula, you're on KTSA. Hi there. Hello. Good evening. Hello, Paula. Um, I met Lady Bird Johnson. Oh, wow. When was this? It was back 87, 88. I worked for mm-hmm. a woman, and she was friends with Lady Bird, and I actually mm-hmm. had the honor of having uh, attending a dinner party at the ranch. Wow. That's a great honor. What a great lady. Mm-hmm. And she was very... She was friendly and extremely gracious.
That's what everybody who ever met her said. That's a great one. Paula, thank you for that memory. That's a wonderful memory to leave it with. We'll pick this up in the morning between 9 and 11. I'll see you for Sean. You're on KTSA. Have a good night.